Welcome to Forgotten TV, the podcast that brings you TV memories of the 70s and 80s, with a focus on short-lived TV shows, pilots, and made-for-TV movies. I'm Chris Cooling. Stand by to raise ship. Five, four, three, two, one, zero! Rocket away! Saturday Morning TV. For decades, the morning and evening network TV schedules were aimed at adults, but Saturday morning was for kids. Prior to the cartoon takeover of the 1960s, Saturday morning TV in the 1950s was originally filled with live-action shows. Whether it was the sci-fi adventure of Tom Corbett's Space Cadet, the heroics of war hero Captain Midnight. It's Captain Midnight! to you by Kicks, the crispy corn cereal that's 83% energy food. Kicks, food for action. Or the slapstick comedy of the Pinky Lee Show. From Hollywood, California, we bring you the Pinky Lee Show with a carload of gags, giggles, and games for everybody. And now... <laughs> All were brought to you by nutritionally questionable breakfast food. Starting around 1962, we started to see Saturday morning TV come into its own with cartoons like Bugs Bunny, Mighty Mouse, and the Jetsons taking over the schedule. And by the fall of 1966, almost every single show on Saturday morning was animated. Then, around 1970, we started to see some odd live-action shows pepper the schedule. And those are the subject of this episode of Forgotten TV. Now, instead of the usual deep dive into the credits, episode titles, and plots, we're just going to have some fun and take a kooky look at the weirdest Saturday morning shows I could find. Why? This is Saturday morning TV in the 70s, where plot and storyline takes a back seat to visuals and concepts, and let's face it, Viewers were less sophisticated and didn't have a lot of choice anyway, unlike today with essentially unlimited viewing options when you can count YouTube, Netflix, and other streaming platforms on top of cable and satellite. Most audiences likely had three networks, PBS, and maybe one or two UHF channels to choose from. But we're going to have no shortage of trivia and tidbits about each show to share, Oh, I almost forgot, my nephew Tommy will join us with his spontaneous reactions to each show. It's Saturday Morning Weirdness on this episode of Forgotten TV. It's Saturday Morning Weirdness on this episode of Forgotten TV. I just said that. So, what is the criteria for inclusion on this episode? Well, the TV show had to be aired on Saturday morning during the Forgotten TV era of 1970 to 1989. And it had to be a national broadcast, not local. Saturday morning TV, once upon a time, was filled with local shows. It wasn't until fall of 1969 that all three networks provided programming from 7 a.m. Central to 12.30 or 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And it has to be a live-action TV show aimed at a kid audience. So, with that criteria, I've come up with at least 10 shows that fit the bill. So much of the weirdness we're about to consider is visual, and I've created a playlist on YouTube, complete with extra features, and I encourage you to follow along by watching the videos on the YouTube playlist. The link to that is in the show notes. 
Yeah. Number one, it's 1969 with H.R. Puffin Stuff. With its original 17-episode run barely making it into the forgotten TV era, H.R. Puffin Stuff came on NBC in fall of 1969, and although they had previously designed the costumes on the banana splits, this was the first effort in live-action, life-sized puppetry by the infamous Sid and Marty Croft. Names we will hear again and again on these episodes. The show was successful enough for NBC to keep it on the Saturday morning schedule through the summer of 1972, and the show was picked up and reran on ABC on Saturday morning for another year before it was syndicated and in the following decades has been run on TV Land and MeTV. It was even adapted to a feature film in 1970. Starring 16-year-old Jack Wilde, fresh off his performance as the Artful Dodger in the film Oliver, Jack played 11-year-old Jimmy on the show. Also starring Cass Elliot, Martha Ray, Billy Barty, and Felix Silla, featuring the voice talents of Walker Edmondson, Joan Gerber, Al Melvin, yes, Sam the Butcher from The Brady Bunch, as well as legendary voice actor Don Messick. So, Tommy, are you ready for the opening segment? Oh, God. H.R. Puffin' Stuff. Who's your friend when things get rough? H.R. Puffin' Stuff. Can't do a little cause he can't do enough. Once upon a summertime, just a dream from yesterday. A boy in this magic golden flute heard a boat from off the bay. Come and play with me, Jimmy. Come and play with me. And I will take you on a trip. Far across the sea. But the boat belonged to a kooky old witch who had in mind the flute to snitch. From her broom broom in the sky, she watched her plans materialize. She waved her wand. The beautiful boat was gone. The skies grew dark, the sea grew rough, and the boat sailed on and on and on and on and on and on. And on. But Puffin' Stuff was watching too and knew exactly what to do. He saw the witch's boat attack and as the boy was fighting back, he called his rescue racer crew as often they'd rehearsed and off to save the boy they flew. But who would get there first? But now the boy had washed ashore. Puff arrived to save the day, which made the witch so mad and sore. She shook her fist and screamed away. H.R. Puff and Stuff, who's your friend when things get rough? H.R. Puff and Stuff, can't do a little cause you can't do enough. H.R. Puff and Stuff, he's your friend when things get rough. H.R. Puff and Stuff, can't do a little cause you can't do enough. What is this abomination? In this show, Jimmy's flute inexplicably comes to life and is named Freddy. Hi, Jimmy. You can talk. Oh, careful. But, but you're just a flute. I've never heard of a flute talking. Did you ever speak to one before? No. So there. Easy now. Oh, that's better. Terrific. And you were wrong about flutes. We can be lonesome too. Will you be my friend? Will I? Oh, boy. By the way, do you have a name? 
Yes, it's Freddy. Freddy's flute. That's a knockout. Then what are we waiting for, Al? Let's go have some fun. You bet. I think it's creepy, and it should be thrown into the depths of hell. Jimmy and Freddy find a boat promising adventure on the kooky living island, home of dancing, talking trees, and singing frogs. The boat was actually owned and controlled by a wicked witch named Wilhelmina W. Witchypoo, played by Billy Hayes, who rode on a broomstick-like vehicle called the Vroom Broom. She used the boat to lure Jimmy and Freddy to her castle on Living Island, where she was going to take Jimmy prisoner and steal Freddy for her own purposes. The mayor of Living Island was a friendly, helpful, anthropomorphic dragon named H.R. Puffinstuff. Since everything on Living Island was alive, any part of the Living Island sets could become a character. And did. There were dozens of additional characters, and they were usually voiced as a parody of famous film stars, such as Mae West, W.C. Fields, Edward G. Robinson, or John Wayne. Many songs were sung on H.R. Puffin Stuff, and in 1970, a soundtrack album was released on LP, cassette, and 8-track. Behind the scenes. It was at the 1968 premiere of Oliver that Wilde met brothers Sid and Marty Croft, and he reportedly was to be paid the incredible sum of a million dollars for a five-year contract. This seems incredible given the show's $52,000 budget, even stretched out to a five-year run that would have represented 23% of the budget. Years later, he states to have never been paid this sum. Marty Croft accepted guardianship of Jack Wilde while the teenage boy was in America, away from his family, filming the show. Penny Marshall actually auditioned for Witchy Poo, but it was felt she wasn't right for the part. When stage veteran Billy Hayes came in next, she set into a maniacal cackle and hopped up onto a desk, and she was given the part on the spot. The H.R. Puffin Stuff character was originally created for the Hemisphere 1968 World's Fair here in San Antonio, where the Crofts produced a show called Kaleidoscope for the Coca-Cola Pavilion. The Croft brothers successfully sued McDonald's over a TV commercial campaign that began in 1971, introducing the McDonaldland concept and won an undisclosed amount of money. They also reportedly received regular royalty checks from McDonald's. In 2004, this show was ranked number 22 in TV Guide's list of the 25 top cult shows ever. I think the boy did drugs and was hallucinating. Any reference or suggestion of drug use is vehemently denied by creators Sid and Marty Croft. And H.R. Pruff and Stuff is available on DVD. Number two, it's Lancelot Link, Secret Chimp. Lancelot Link, Secret Chimp. Show for him, Greedo's his name, and Dragon Woman. 
Jones lovely but you wake it all the same old dance link what you gonna do when that doctor strange man comes up to you this alley assassin And with that somewhat politically incorrect opening, we have a series that defies categorization. A Saturday morning action-adventure live-action comedy starring chimpanzees with dubbed-over voices and a laugh track. Okay. With plots that made the skits of the monkeys look like high art, the series featured Lancelot Link, a pop star recruited to be a secret agent, and his female colleague, Mata Harry, working for Ape, the agency to prevent evil. They fought against Chump, the criminal headquarters for the Underworld's master plan. Actors Dayton Allen, Bernie Capel, and Joan Gerber voiced almost all of the voiceover work, much of it done ad-lib to match the mouths and actions of the already filmed animals. What do you think, Tommy? I would never watch this. It's too disturbing for me to. Not pretty weird. Disturbingly weird. If this sounds really familiar to Get Smart, you're right. Two of the creator-producers, Stan Burns and Mike Marmer, were both former writers of Get Smart. Stan Burns and Mike Marmer quit their jobs as head writers on The Carol Burnett Show to work on Lancelot Link. Both were previously writers on Get Smart. The show had an outrageous budget of over a million dollars. It ran from January to April in 1970 on Saturday mornings at 8 a.m. Central, and it was the first show on the ABC network feed for the day. There were 17 total episodes. The show was rerun on Nick at Night, TV Land, and the then-named The Comedy Channel. A 1999 documentary short called I Created Lancelot Link was filmed, and you'll find it in the YouTube playlist. And a DVD of the series is actually available. Number 3. Airing on NBC in fall of 1970, Sid and Marty Croft brought us The Bugaloos. The Bugaloos? The Bugaloos, the Bugaloos, we're in the air and everywhere, flying high, flying loose, flying free as a summer breeze, happy as a summer breeze. Martha Ray, Billy Barty, and Sharon Baird return to the world of Croft, joined by pretty much unknown actors as Bugaloos, IQ the Grasshopper, Harmony the Mumblebee, Courage the Ladybug, and Joy the Butterfly. Instead of using the usual Croft formula of someone from the real world stumbling into a fantastical universe, we are simply presented with the characters living in their own world. The Bugaloos are a peace-loving and hippie-like rock and roll band with bug wings who live in magical, tranquility forest. 
Their nemesis, Benita Bazaar, lived in a giant jukebox and used it to broadcast her own brand of blaring, obnoxious, unpleasant music. Crazy cat, Grandma. Benita is aided by her two bumbling henchmen, the anthropomorphic speakers, Woofer and Tweeter. Seventeen episodes were shot on videotape in Los Angeles. The title song's lyrics were written by Norman Gimbel, and its music was composed by Charles Fox, names that should be familiar to viewers of Wonder Woman. They also wrote and composed Roberta Flack's hit, Killing Me Softly, with his song. Like H.R. Puffin Stuff, an album of songs from the show was released in 1970. Behind the Scenes This was the second series to be produced by Sid and Marty Croft after H.R. Puffin Stuff. It also was the first one to be shot on videotape rather than be filmed. Touted as the British version of the Monkees, the Bugaloos attracted more than 5,000 young actors and actresses to audition for an open casting call, including 19-year-old Phil Collins for the role of IQ. He was one of three finalists that were being considered for that role. Oddly enough, a miscommunication between the Crofts and the actors resulted in them returning to England the December after filming against the Crofts' wishes. As a result, a potential second season was ultimately scrapped, along with their plans for a movie. After these messages, we'll be right back. Looking for a Saturday morning place to be. Step inside the magical world of ABC. Button your shoe, we're waiting for you to have some fun. Ready or not, you found the spot, and here we come. Meet, meet, the roadrunner is hurrying by. Meet, meet, keep out of his way. And in Lidsville, kids will find that every hand has got a face and something to say. Funky Phantom, he's a ghost from history. How he got to where he is is a mystery. So your father is a nerd. Unfortunately, there's no player's guide to raising a family. But this podcast is meant to be a family's guide to nerdism. Join us, Alec and Zuby, as we go in depth as to what it's like to raising a family of nerdlings and the adventures and hardships of fatherhood. We dive deep into our favorite nerd topics and talk to you about how it's related to raising a family. You can find So Your Father's a Nerd on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. And now, back to our show. Number four, Lidsville. Our fourth show to consider, and the third entry from Sid and Marty Croft, starred ex-monster Butch Patrick, who turned 18 during production of this show, Returning Sid and Marty Croft regulars Billy Hayes, Sharon Baird, Felix Silla, as well as Charles Nelson Riley. <laughs> How's that for a topper? <laughs> Lidsville aired on ABC in the fall of 1971, and 17 episodes were produced. It was rerun on NBC as well, starting in the fall of 1973, so it aired for a full three years on Saturday morning. What was Lidsville about? Let's find out. In the middle of the 
the summer in the middle of a park There began a great adventure for a boy whose name was Mark He had come to see the magic man along with all the children And twas so began the day that Mark was never to forget he performed all sorts of miracles, and Mark was so impressed That when the time arrived to go, he lagged behind the rest Then quietly he did return the secret of the hat to learn But everyone had gone away, and darkness held its rent The moment that he touched the hat, the room began to glow And as he put it down and ran, the hat began to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow And he was fascinated, still he had to see There was something deep inside the hat What could that something be? Then cautiously each step he took He climbed upon the brim to look And all at once the hat began to shake And rock, look out! <laughs> that is a terrible Photoshop fail. Yes, we're back to the familiar Croft formula with Teenage Mark falling into the land of living hats, where characters both lived in hats, wore hats, and the entire world was in a hat. Okay. Where magician Horatio J. Hoodoo flew around in his hatamaran zapping inhabitants of Lidsville with magic bolts. Some episodes depicted Mark trying to escape Lidsville. Turns out he found hell. With the cavalcade of characters like Weenie the Genie, Raunchy Rabbit, The Bad Hats, Madam Ring-A-Ding, and plenty of others, this show had the largest cast of players yet on a Sid and Marty Croft show, 28 in all, and was utter insanity. Unlike earlier shows, H.R. Puffin Stuff and The Bugaloos, which had smaller and more benign settings, which now adult viewers remember fondly, more than a few recall being terrified by this show and the mean-spiritedness of villain Horatio Hoodoo. Viewed now, Butch Patrick looked genuinely uneasy as a fish out of water and the intended victim of Charles Nelson Reilly's endless schemes, which included attempts to kill him something that would never be allowed on a kid's show today. Behind the scenes. It's rumored that the Crofts originally planned to cast Mark Lester in Lidsville. Lester was Jack Wilde's co-star as the title character, Oliver. Even if this isn't true, it's interesting that the Butch Patrick character's name is Mark. The opening sequence to Lidsville was filmed at Six Flags Over Texas. To fill out the large cast, the Crofts hired an acting troupe of little people, known as Hermine's Midgets. Characters from Lidsville were featured in the Ice Capades during the early 1970s. I remember that. The show has popped up here and there in popular culture. Audio samples from Lidsville can be heard in Marilyn Manson's 1994 song, Dope Hat. 
The show was parodied on the HBO late-night comedy program Mr. Show, but my favorite reference has to be in the Millennium episode Jose Chung's Doomsday Defense, where Charles Nelson Reilly reprises his X-Files role of Jose Chung, and he makes an in-character reference to his Lidsville role. His lovable flamboyancy made him not only a literary icon, but a cultural one as well. Why, he even made a cameo appearance in an award-winning film at Cannes. Nobody ever comes out of there alive! <laughs> in 2011, it was announced that DreamWorks Animation was adapting Lidsville to make a 3D animated musical, but the production was troubled and the idea was abandoned. This is the second Croft show that seems to reference drug use. Look up the slang meaning of the term lid if you don't know what I'm talking about. Again, Sid and Marty Croft deny any drug influence on their concepts or shows. And Lidsville is available on DVD. Number 5. Our fifth show is The Fourth Creation by the Crofts. Airing on NBC in the fall of 1973 through October of 1975, Two seasons of Sigmund and the Sea Monsters were produced with 29 episodes. The show was about two brothers that find and befriend a sea monster at the beach. It's Sigmund and the Sea Monsters. Sigmund, you are a rotten sea monster. Sigmund, you're through. Scram, get out of here. Johnny Whitaker and Scott Colden had previously worked together the prior year on the Disney made-for-TV movie Mystery of Dracula's Castle. Now 13 and 11, they were two brothers that were friends of Sigmund, a juvenile sea monster that had been kicked out of his home for refusing to frighten people. The boys hide Sigmund in their clubhouse, and we have the premise for our show. This turned the typical Croft formula on its head, and instead of a human child in a strange, fantastical land, this show has a fantastical character come into the real world. And yes, the sea monsters were mascot-type costumes worn by small performers. Billy Barty returning to the world of Croft as Sigmund. I know it's just a person in a costume, but that looks like something straight out of a nightmare. In the first season, Plots revolved around hiding Sigmund from their housekeeper Zelda and nosy neighbor Mrs. Eldles, notably played by Margaret Hamilton, as well as the sheriff, and keeping Sigmund from being abducted by his family members. I personally was scared by Big Mama when I was a kid. He has one tooth, so he, 
He might cut his gums while trying to eat something. Oddly, the parents are on perpetual vacation and are never seen on the show. As the case with many of the Croft shows, music played a big part. In at least 10, by my count, of the 17 first season episodes, the boys, usually Johnny, sang and the songs typically became music montages integrated into the plot and usually revolved around some girl he met, but not always. You better run, you better hide, we gotta keep you outside, be careful, sick man. No, Uncle Siggy, Sigmund's not back yet, but don't worry. Next time you're in town, we'll have him for you. Bye. I'll get you for this, you dickbag. Let the Siggy get away. This is your big Give daddy, daddy talking. Makes me smile. I like his style. With the exception of the fantastical elements of sea monsters and other than needing haircuts, the boys lived normal lives, did their chores, recycled, and kept their room clean. All of this was done without being preachy or beating the viewer over the head with a moral lesson. This was balanced by the outrageous home life of the sea monster family, which seemed to parody the life of the boys. Season 2 had some changes. Johnny was now 14, and with puberty in full force, his voice was undergoing daily changes. Thus, gone were all the songs that peppered the first season. But they did get a good one recorded, and thus we got a new theme song for Season 2. Let me tell you a tale, a very scary tale about two boys who were surfing one day. On a very weird beach round dead man's point where there are haunted sea caves, they say. And strange sea monsters have been sighted there If you're traveling in the area, beware, 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 beware Sigmund, you're a rotten sea monster You're a disgrace to the family Go out and scare a human or you're through Oh, come on, come on Meanwhile, back on the beach Johnny and Scott are combing the rocks Unaware that behind them Sigmund lurks Prepared to give them a shot in total surprise, the boy's eye, this blob, what can it be? And then it groans and moves and lo, it's a monster from the sea. Now Sigmund, the sea monster, and Johnny and Scott are friends. The finest friends that ever could be on the land or on the sea. Now Sigmund, the sea monster, and Johnny and Scott are friends. Rip Taylor joins the cast as a magical sea genie, Sheldon, adding an even more fantastical element to the show. 
Soon, Sheldon's nephew Shelby was added to the cast, because why not? As well as character actress Fran Ryan as new housekeeper Gertrude, her character didn't last long, and Zelda soon returned. Jack Wilde and Eve Plum also made guest appearances. Behind the scenes. In May of 1974, a set fire at Goldwyn Studios did $2 million of damage and burned up all the sets for the show and most of the costumes. Production was shut down for weeks, and the show moved away from the Sea Monster family subplot out of necessity. Fortunately, Rip Taylor had already joined the cast, and the focus of the show was easily moved to stories driven by his magical antics. The songs for the show were written by Danny Jansen, Bobby Hart, and Wes Farrell, collectively responsible for hit songs for The Monkees, The Partridge Family, various and sundry Saturday morning TV shows, as well as the McCoys hit Hang On Sloopy. An album was released in 1973 called Friends, music from the television series Sigmund and the Sea Monsters. The show was reincarnated on Amazon Video in 2016 as a new modern take on the series, but so far only one episode has been produced. Tommy and I sat down and watched it today, and I think he was entertained, even if he would only admit it wasn't as disturbing as the original. Amazon says new episodes are on the way, but it's been a year, and they better get on it quickly because kids tend to age out of these roles really fast. If you check it out, see if you can spot the cameos by Sid and Marty Croft, as well as Johnny Whitaker. Sigmund and the Sea Monsters is available on DVD. Next time on Forgotten TV. Out of the sky. From the Lost Saucer and Monster Squad to the Croft Super Show, it's the conclusion of Saturday Morning Weirdness, next time on Forgotten TV. Don't get left behind, take a trip with us today, we will lead you to a land of dreams. Some super shows, they will blow your mind away. Forgotten TV is not affiliated with Sid and Marty Croft television productions or any network or production company involved in the making of any show mentioned in this episode. All mentioned series and associated characters are the property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only and are not intended to infringe. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels and websites for making the audio clips possible. Vintage Entertainment, TV's Greatest, Puff and Stuff Productions, Mind Warp 105, Don Miller, Mr. Mad Hatter 106, as well as SidandMartyCroft.com, as well as the 1998 book, Sid and Marty Croft, A Critical Study of Saturday Morning Children's Television, 1969-1993. Forgotten TV is a member of the Frequent Wire Podcast Network. To find other great podcasts, click the link to Frequent Wire in the show notes. If you listen to this show on iTunes or Stitcher, please rate and review it. 
and subscribe on any podcast app. Be sure and like the Forgotten TV Facebook page and like us on Twitter. All that is linked up for you at Forgotten.tv. I'm Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Forgotten TV.